You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 22. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Covenant Theological Seminary presents Calvin's Institutes with Dr. David Calhoun. Okay, once again on the church, book four. Perhaps uh, we'll get into sacraments today. I think we will. If we don't, uh, we will look at sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper on Tuesday, and civil government next Thursday for the last uh, two classes. Uh, we have uh, moved uh, through this outline uh, through into Roman numeral four, church offices. Head of the church is Christ. Christ works through the ministry of men for three reasons that uh, we've looked at. And uh, now we come down to uh, categories, the different categories of ministry uh, that Calvin sees uh, in the church. Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we look at uh, what Calvin says about uh, the ministry. And I'll use a prayer from John Calvin. Let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, since you prove our faith and constancy by many trials, as it is our duty in this respect, as in all others, to submit to your will, grant that we may not give way to the many attacks by which we are tossed about. For we are assailed on all sides by Satan and all the impious, and while their fury is ever burning and raging cruelly against us. May we never yield to it. May we proceed in our warfare in reliance on the unconquered might of the Spirit, even though evil doers prevail for a season. May we look forward to the event of your only begotten Son, not only when he shall appear at the last day, but also whenever it shall please you for him to assist the church and raise it out of its miserable afflictions. And even if we must endure our distresses, may our courage never fail us until at length we are gathered into that happy rest which has been obtained for us through the blood of the same, your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We look at uh, the categories uh, of ministry. Calvin says God, for good reasons, works through the ministry of people. And uh, then he proceeds to describe the different uh, offices or categories. And uh, he divides uh, these into two large categories. Uh, one is uh, temporary and another is permanent talks about temporary offices, which he also calls extraordinary, and then permanent offices in the church, which he also calls ordinary. So I'll comment um, first on Calvin's um, category of temporary or extraordinary offices. And uh, here he 
places uh, apostles and evangelists and prophets. Those are the three temporary or extraordinary offices. Offices, Calvin says, in 434, which God raised up at the beginning of his kingdom and now and again revives as the need of the time demands. So, it's kind of a startling statement, isn't it? Because we think of uh, apostles, that office uh, not continuing, uh, prophets, that office not continuing, and then we'll have to see what Calvin means by evangelists, because in some sense we see that office as continuing. Uh, but uh, Calvin says these offices uh, were temporary, but God can raise them up again if he so chooses. And uh, as you probably know, Calvin, on several occasions, including um, an inference in the Institutes, several occasions, Calvin remarks that God has indeed done that in the 16th century so that we could think of Martin Luther as a new apostle. It's quite um, interesting, both for Calvin's esteem for Luther, seeing Luther as a new apostle, and the fact that Calvin is willing to see the apostolic office as an office that could, under certain circumstances, be established again. Uh, Calvin some ways, I think, would put himself in the same category in the other reformers. He, writing to the king of Poland in 1554, he talks about the charge which the Lord gave us has been altogether extraordinary when he employed our work to restore the churches. So, Calvin sees the work of the apostles in establishing the church in the first century and then the church had so deteriorated through history that by the 16th century, it um, practically had to be reestablished. And so, there is the possibility of the office of apostle being reinstituted. Now, Calvin never connects that new office or that reinstituted office with revelation of Scripture, inspiration, or anything like that, but he does see a kind of uh, extraordinary role for some people, mainly Luther, in bringing back uh, what had almost been uh, destroyed uh, in the church. Well, with that uh, introductory comment on Calvin's view of the extraordinary Offices. Let's look at uh, apostles, prophets, and evangelists and uh, see how Calvin uh, treats these. The, the apostle for Calvin uh, was the person primarily, the persons primarily uh, given uh, the Great Commission. The Lord said to the apostles, go and preach the gospel uh, to every creature. And then he sees evangelists. The, the category of evangelist is, as he puts it, 
next to the apostles in office. There are the apostles and then there are evangelists that assist the apostles. He would see, for instance, um, Peter as an apostle and Mark as an evangelist. Mark is Peter's assistant. Or Paul as an apostle and Timothy and Titus as evangelists. They're very close to the apostles. They assist and work alongside of the apostles, but they are not described as apostles in the New Testament. By defining apostles the way Calvin does, I think it creates something of a problem. He links it so closely to the Great Commission that apparently in Calvin's mind, as in the mind of a good many 16th century people, the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel everywhere was given to these apostles and only to these apostles. And that's what they did. They went and preached the gospel in other places, starting in Jerusalem and then Judea and then uh, to the outermost part of the earth. But limiting the Great Commission to the Apostles hinders a development, I think, in Calvin of a full appreciation of the fact that that commission is meant for all Christians, we think, not just for the Apostles. And it's not that clear that the Apostles went into all the world. In fact, uh, the Apostles were pretty reluctant to move out of Jerusalem. It took um, God's uh, special effort to get Peter and the others um, beyond the limits of Jerusalem, even going elsewhere into Judea. So there isn't the the rapid uh, obedience of the apostles, but a kind of slowness to obey that um, has to be overcome by some special works of God uh, in the hearts of uh, these people. And to not link the Great Commission to the ongoing responsibility of the church to take uh, the gospel into all the world hindered, I believe, the development of the Protestant uh, missionary movement. Calvin was missionary-minded in many ways, but uh, his um, understanding of the role of the apostles as fulfilling what we call the Great Commission was, I think, exegetically a mistake and did not um, then allow that text to function fully as a missionary mandate. It did not really come into its own, you might say, until the 19th century when Christian people began to think, well, this is for us too. We need to obey this. It's not only for the apostles, but it's for all people. And uh, the apostles fell far short of fulfilling that. They could not just 12 men, 11, and then another added, could not have taken the gospel uh, into all the world. I developed that uh, idea in some detail in an article in Presbyterian that I wrote uh, a good many years ago now, 1979. I first came to the seminary called John Calvin, Missionary Hero or Missionary Failure. And... uh, develop uh, that uh, idea further. In some ways, Calvin uh, 
has in his theology a great deal of uh, missionary theology, missionary dynamic, and in his own practice, a missionary heart. But uh, at this one place, I think, um, there is a kind of um, misconstruction of the understanding of the Great Commission by limiting it uh, to the apostles. But anyway, that's Calvin's view. The apostles were the people commissioned by God to take the gospel uh, into all the world. And I think uh, that's the way he can see the office of apostle being reconstituted uh, in times of uh, great emergency. When the gospel has, has been lost, and you might say it has to be taken again, we have to start over, just like in the New Testament uh, period. And so God raises up um, this time a man named Martin Luther, and he's the one that reestablishes uh, the gospel. So Calvin says we can call him an apostle. That's the sense in which uh, Calvin would, would see Luther uh, as an apostle. As I said, no thought that um, the words of Luther could be inspired as uh, the words of Paul were inspired. But Luther was a man called to do a job in a critical age when everything practically had been lost, just as the apostles were men called to establish the gospel where it did not exist. Well, what does uh, Calvin say about prophets? This is another um, temporary, extraordinary office. Prophets are those who excelled in a particular revelation, he says. So we've got a category now of New Testament offices, people that excel in a particular revelation. Does that class end? Does that office end? Well, Calvin says that's temporary and extraordinary. But then in 434, he puts it this way, this class either does not exist today or is less commonly seen. <laughs> so he kind of opens the door again for the reemergence of the office of New Testament uh, prophet. To try to describe what I think Calvin means uh, when he says that. And the best way is to look at his um, commentaries on a number of New Testament passages. Um, first, Ephesians 4:11. He describes the prophets this way: outstanding interpreters of prophecies who by a unique gift of revelation applied them to the subjects on hand. That sounds like he's saying uh, the prophets were people that, um, that God spoke to in order to give them an understanding of the revelation of Scripture so that they could apply that revelation in a very direct and powerful way. But uh, Calvin goes on in that same passage, Ephesians 4.11, to say, but I do not exclude the gift of foretelling so far as it was connected with teaching. So apparently his understanding of the New Testament prophet was a person that could apply the scripture in a direct and powerful way. And yet, 
there would also be the possibility of what we call predictive prophecy. And, you know, we see that in the New Testament prophets uh, with people like Agabus and others who foretell the future. Well, let's look at his commentary on 1 Corinthians 12.10. I take the term prophecy to mean that unique and outstanding gift of revealing what is the secret will of God so that the prophet is, so to speak, God's messenger to men. There it seems to come very close to what we call prophetic preaching. Not He doesn't mention foretelling here, but uh, being able to take um, the secret will of God, which I understand Calvin to mean by that the will God that he has revealed in the scripture, so that the prophet is, so to speak, God's messenger to men. Calvin may mean more than that. He may mean there is some revelation to that prophet apart from what appears in the scripture. But he seems to be bringing two ideas together constantly as he looks at New Testament prophets. Um, One is what we would call prophetic preaching today, and uh, the other is predictive prophecy. Commentary on 1 Corinthians 12.28 I'm certain in my own mind that Paul means by prophets, not those endowed with the gift of foretelling, but those who were blessed with the unique gift of dealing with Scripture, not only interpreting it, but also by the wisdom they showed in making it meet the needs of the hour. There he definitely rejects the idea of foretelling, and um, defines um, the prophet as a powerful preacher, a person that understands the scripture and knows how to apply it to meet the needs of the hour. But then he goes on to say this. From this verse, 1 Corinthians 12:28, let us therefore learn that prophets are, one, outstanding interpreters of scripture, And two, men endowed with extraordinary wisdom and aptitude for grasping what the immediate need of the church is and speaking the right word to meet it. That is why they are, so to speak, messengers who bring news of what God wants. So that whole passage deals with uh, powerful preaching, correct interpretation, powerful preaching, so that... um, You know, we could think of um, a number of people, John Piper, people like that, that uh, would seem to be modern-day prophets in that sense, powerful preaching and application of the Word of God to what we need. I should also add Brian Chappell and uh, many others that we could, uh, could think of. Well... What does Calvin mean when he says this class does not exist today or is less commonly seen? And um, I'm not uh, sure how to um, solve that. Calvin seems in some places to say there is also that predictive element. And I'm not absolutely sure that Calvin is saying that uh, occasionally there could be people 
in later epochs of church history who would be prophets in that sense. Or if he's saying the New Testament prophet was primarily a, a person who could powerfully proclaim the revealed truth of God and um, why and if that's his meaning is this office not often seen. There is quite a debate you might know um, related to people like John Knox. Did John Knox really think that he was a prophet? He would often use that uh, expression about himself. And um, even at times um, predict the future. So there are some people that think that Knox saw himself as a prophet. Well, he certainly saw himself and Calvin and Luther and the other reformers as a prophet in the sense of proclaiming the revealed truth of God. But Knox seems to go a bit further than that. My own thought on Knox is that he does not view himself as receiving revelation from God about the future, which he can then speak to the people, although he does give some very explicit uh, prophecies as to what's going to happen to certain people, mainly the enemies of the Reformation, and what he prophesies is that uh, they'll come to no good end, but um, can be rather precise as to how that's going to happen. My guess is that what Knox is doing is taking Scripture. Knox found in the Old Testament particularly a kind of a pattern for the history of Scotland. So if he gets everything lined up just right, you know, uh, then he's got a kind of um, history beforehand. And I believe that's what Knox is doing. He's reading Scripture in a certain way, and he says, uh, here's Jezebel, and here's what Jezebel did, and this is what happened to Jezebel, and here's Mary, Queen of Scots, and that's what she's doing. This is what's going to happen to her. So my idea is that uh, Knox's view of himself as a prophet was not that he was having words from God saying, this is going to happen, but this is how God has worked in the past in Scripture. And uh, this is how he will work again. And he makes some pretty astute guesses then as to how things will turn out and sometimes seems to hit it right on the head. But uh, that's, a, that's a different uh, issue, uh, although it's related uh, to what we're talking about uh, here. So I think about the best we can do on prophets is to say Calvin saw these people as New Testament people, present, of course, in the Old Testament too, but uh, in the New Testament as well, and um, they were people that could understand and proclaim the Word of God with um, urgency and appropriateness and power, and at least in some passages, he says, they can also predict the future as God so enables them uh, to do that. This class either does not exist today or is less commonly seen. Uh, that's the problem. I expect what Calvin means there is that if you take both parts of his definition of prophet, you don't have much of that. Maybe none. It's like uh, with the apostles. 
don't see apostles, but occasionally one appears, and Luther is case in point. You don't see prophets in the sense of both powerful preaching and the predictive element, but uh, Calvin doesn't seem to want to rule it out entirely as an impossibility. Question? Could Calvin be a little bit hesitant because of the Anabaptists? Because a lot of them claim to be prophets. The question is, could Calvin be hesitant on this because of the claim of the Anabaptists? Are you saying that um, Calvin would want to reject that claim and Consequently, he's trying to restrict this as much as possible, right. but he doesn't really. Not to be on their side. That's right. Yes, I think that is is uh, is true. The Anabaptists are the radicals, to extend the definition uh, even further. Did claim uh, some of them that they were recipients of revelation and that their words uh, could stand alongside of Scripture. Uh, Calvin certainly would want to fight against that. He certainly doesn't want to open this door too far, but he doesn't seem to want to close it just tightly shut and say, can't be, again. But certainly Calvin's context is, is influencing him there. Well, we have um, temporary, extraordinary. We've looked at uh, apostles and their associates, evangelists, and we've looked at uh, prophets. So let's move to the permanent and ordinary offices uh, of the church. Now, Calvin doesn't really like the word clergy. You might uh, have picked up on that. He says, I would have preferred, that is, pastors, elders, and so on, deacons, preferred them to be given a more proper name, for this appellation arose from error, or at least from the wrong attitude. What's wrong with uh, using the word clergy for the ministry? Know what that means? What does the word clergy mean? Well, it means belonging to the Lord. And Calvin says the whole church belongs to the Lord. So we should not use uh, clergy, a word that comes from Greek word that means belonging uh, to the Lord or the inheritance of the Lord. See that in 1 Peter uh, 5, 3. Uh, that's not an appropriate word for part of the church. That's a word that should be used for, for all of the church. You might say that... Um, Calvin was not attempting to abolish the clergy. He certainly has offices that he thinks should be preserved. He's not attempting to abolish the clergy, but what he is attempting to do is to abolish the laity. So everybody becomes clergy, but within clergy, all those who belong to the Lord, there are some that are called to specific offices. Calvin doesn't talk as much as Luther does about priesthood of all believers, but I think you can get the same idea from time to time. You certainly can here. You should not make a distinction between some in the church 
and others and say these belong to the Lord and these belong to the church or these belong to the pastor or something else. Everyone belongs to the Lord. And within that uh, category of the church, everyone belonging uh, to the Lord, uh, there are certain specific offices to which certain people are called. And these are permanent. And uh, these are ordinary in the sense of not being extraordinary. These are typical. Modern-day apostle, modern-day prophet, be very atypical. These don't exist anymore, or at least not very often do they appear. But um, with these ordinary offices, we have a whole continuity of people that uh, fill these offices. First, uh, pastors, in some ways, um, very significant ways, pastors correspond today to the role of apostles and evangelists uh, in the New Testament period, Calvin says, in that they are sent by the Lord and are his messengers. But uh, the difference would be this. Calvin saw the apostles and their associates, the evangelists, as having no set limits. They're sent into all the world. But a pastor is called uh, to a particular church. Although Calvin makes quite clear uh, that uh, even though a pastor is called to a particular church, he is at the same time a minister to the whole church. And uh, that's how we conceive ordination in the Presbyterian Church today. A man is called and ordained, some of you will be before long, to a particular church, but uh, your ministry is not limited to that church. You are ordained to be a minister of the whole church. And in the Presbyterian system, of course, uh, you have plenty of opportunity to do that in your work in Presbyterian General Assembly. And uh, Calvin seems to me is very clear on this, but um, he does want to see the office of apostle and evangelist as uh, open-ended and without limit, and the office of pastor as more specified and and definite. Uh, The pastor, in Calvin's um, understanding, uh, is responsible for preaching, and uh, for the sacraments, and uh, for church discipline. He's going to share his role as one responsible for church discipline with some other officers of the church, but um, that would be included in the list of responsibilities for pastor. Calvin puts it uh, this way, the function of the pastor or minister is to instruct the people to true godliness, to administer the sacred mysteries, and to keep and exercise upright discipline, 436. So, It's all there. 
the two marks of the church and the third later mark. Calvin doesn't make a separate mark, but uh, brings very close uh, to the two marks to preserve the church. The pastor has the ultimate responsibility uh, in all of that. The church is going to remain a true church, and the word must be preached, the sacraments administered correctly, and uh, discipline exercised. In thinking of preaching the word, Calvin asked this question, why are pastors so important in the church? Does not everyone have a chance to read the scriptures for himself? Why do we need preaching if we have Bibles? Can't we just have people read the Bible and apply it for themselves? Uh, Yes, Calvin says that is true. They should do that. But this is from the commentary on 2 Timothy 2.15. Pastors carve and divide the word like a father dividing the bread into small pieces to feed his children. That's a rather beautiful image that Calvin uses. People can read the Bible for themselves, but they don't always get it right and they don't always understand it and it's complicated and it's big and it's hard but uh, the pastor stands up and takes the bread and divides it into little tiny pieces and hands it out to his uh, children so keep that in mind when you prepare your sermons (laughs) that that is uh, what you're going to be doing Calvin has an office here that uh, has not continued to be utilized in the Reformed tradition. He thinks that the office of teacher is a permanent office and um, an ordinary office. He sees it as a separate office, both in the institutes and in his ecclesiastical ordinances, which he brought out in 1541 for Geneva. I think Calvin was was conscious and believed that the office of pastor and teacher could often be combined in the same person, as in Calvin's own case. I think we would say he was was pastor and he was teacher. That's how he describes himself in his will, his final will, was pastor and teacher for the city of Geneva. By the way, you know, Calvin really, as far as we know, and I think we know this, was never ordained. He just skipped over all that. He believes in ordination and he teaches ordination, but um, he was um, never a priest in the Catholic Church. He was trained as a lawyer, and then he was kind of taken hold of by Farrell and thrust into the work of the church and there was nobody to ordain him. He ordained other people but he was not ordained by anyone. He doesn't uh, really say that, doesn't make that point but uh, we can see that by reading uh, the history of Calvin. But uh, his his role was as, uh, as pastor, uh, teacher. You know, Calvin doesn't do something in his description of the pastor 
that modern pastors would uh, think rather astounding, and that it, that is, he doesn't say anything about church administration or organization, and he had to do a lot of that, but uh, that doesn't uh, really come forward here. He's conscious of the importance of preaching, ministering the sacraments, and exercising discipline, and I suppose under exercising discipline, uh, he would think of the organization of the church, the administration of the church, all the responsibilities that that um, go uh, into that. Somebody has said that we can kind of see the, the shift in the ministry in the modern period from preacher to administrator, uh, noticing how pulpits have shrunk to something more like this, and offices have gotten bigger. <laughs> and um, maybe that is an illustration of the signs of of the time. Well, to get back uh, to uh, teachers, the teachers, I believe, uh, in Calvin's uh, view, uh, correspond to the prophets, not uh, in the predictive uh, sense, but in the sense of skill in applying uh, the scripture uh, to the needs of the people and uh, to the times. Ministry of the teacher is scriptural interpretation and teaching. And uh, pastor, of course, does that. But Calvin saw the possibility of a separate office for teacher so that this person would have responsibility not for the sacraments and not for discipline, but along with the pastor for the exposition of, of God's Word. The fact that this has dropped out, you know, has really left uh, almost no clear place in the ministry of the Reformed Church for a seminary professor. We have to be called as evangelist because we do have a category for evangelist. But that's not exactly what we are. We're more like we're more like Calvin's teachers, and um, I would like to see that recovered with a, a separate uh, calling uh, for a teacher. Now, some churches now, as you know, have teachers, uh, basically. It's what Dr. Doriani was at the Kirk before he became senior pastor at Central. He was theologian in residence, I think was his title. But uh, he was a teacher, um, serving uh, as a teacher uh, in a local church alongside of the pastor, uh, who was and is also a teacher. Julia, do you have a comment? Calvin had the concept of pastors think of or use the words shepherding or discipling as we would think of them today? Well, I'm sure he does. He would use shepherding and discipling take some searching to find the specific places where uh, he would do that, but um, he doesn't in the institutes. He certainly would in the commentaries, and I think he would see see that um, as a role uh, for pastors. That would come under discipline, 
shepherding, discipling, sounds like discipline. And um, in Calvin, as I'll point out in a moment, I think I already said this too, exercise of church discipline is not just correcting people when they go wrong, it's helping them go right. So he's very concerned with that positive aspect of discipline as well as the negative aspect of discipline. Along with pastors, teachers, there's a third office, elders. Primary responsibility of the elders is the spiritual welfare of the people, along with the pastors. The elders are concerned about the spiritual welfare of the people and consequently with church discipline. Calvin says in 438 that the elders are chosen from the people. Calvin's Presbyterianism is not fully fleshed out and it's limited by certain church-state problems that he struggled with in his day. So not everything is done in Geneva as would be done later. We get, I think, uh, the first full expression of Presbyterianism that seems very comparable to what we have today in the second book of discipline of Andrew Melville in Scotland. But Calvin has certainly pointed in the direction that uh, Melville will later follow. I said that because when Calvin says that uh, elders should be chosen from the people, it's not exactly the way it worked in Geneva. Uh, Geneva had a consistory like a session or a presbytery, and uh, there were 12 elders, but they were chosen by the councils. It would be like uh, elders for the church today being chosen by county government. Unthinkable for us. But in those days of union of church and state, uh, you have a much closer connection between uh, church and state, of course, and uh, the elders were not chosen by the people, but uh, by the councils. It was not the way Calvin wanted it, and he attempted to change it, but um, was not able to completely reverse that policy. By 1560, the elders were chosen by the little Council. There were three councils in Geneva, three levels of church government. The little council uh, was um, the more day-to-day operation. And um, the little council chose the elders with advice of the ministers subject to the approval of the congregation. So at least the congregation had a word there, finally in 1560. Calvin wrote in a circular letter for several churches, you have among you men who have been chosen and appointed to correct scandals, to warn those who are sinful, and to acknowledge those who conduct themselves honorably. 
wanted to read that because I think that that gives Calvin some emphasis on not only correcting but promoting. So the elders are to uh, warn those who are sinful, correct scandals, and uh, to acknowledge and further uh, the work of those who conduct themselves honorably. All right, next, the deacons. Calvin has four permanent offices then, pastor, elder, teacher, and deacon. During the uh, Middle Ages, the New Testament office of, of deacon had degenerated into a kind of liturgical adjunct. If you go through the polity of the Catholic Church, uh, deacons in the Middle Ages are not anything like uh, deacons in the New Testament, where they have responsibility for uh, the benevolences uh, of the church. And uh, what Calvin does in the office of deacon is to restore uh, this office uh, to the original function of caring uh, for the sick and caring uh, for the poor. Calvin calls this a highly honorable office. And he also says that the deacons have the responsibility of uh, the church's benevolence, the church's charity, the church's um, outreach in practical ways, in compassion for the poor and needy. But he says deacons must also be skilled in the Christian faith. So it's not just people that have good business sense, but uh, people who are skilled in the Christian faith, since they will often have to give advice and comfort. There's a kind of a ministry there that the deacons have too in advice and comfort and that would mean spiritual advice as well as practical advice. There are two categories of deacons, two classes of deacons. One is the class of financial officers who administer the church's benevolence. These are deacons. They receive the gifts that the church uh, gives for the poor and the needy, and then they distribute those gifts uh, like the deacons in Acts. And this was, this was a pretty big undertaking in Geneva. You see, today in this country and in almost every country, if not every country, we have all kinds of social programs in effect. So the government does a great deal of what the church would have done uh, back in the 16th century. But uh, in Geneva, there was what was called the French Fund, and uh, money uh, was uh, collected. This fund was staffed by deacons of the Reformed Church, and uh, 
that served to provide uh, for poor refugees from Catholic countries, feeding the poor, providing housing, caring for the sick, paying school fees, providing vocational training, you know, all these things that uh, kind of provided in social services of the state today. Uh, these were being done by the church in Geneva in the 16th century. So deacons had to be competent and uh, work hard in order to do uh, all of that. By the late uh, 1550s, uh, the fund, the French fund, extended beyond the poor to become part of the missionary endeavor emanating from Geneva. So it took on not only a care for the poor and needy aspect, but it became a fund that supported missionaries. And um, what is particularly in view there is the support, the help, uh, financial help given uh, to men from France who come to Geneva train in Geneva with Calvin and the others and then are sent back uh, to their homeland, to France, great danger. Many of them died, but to establish the uh, French Reformed Church, the Huguenot Church uh, in uh, France. That is one uh, category. The administrative officers leading to the development of the French fund. The other category of uh, deacons would be uh, the people who really actually take care of the poor, almost like social workers or welfare workers. And uh, this is the office in Calvin's view that women could fill. So Calvin does have a place for women as deacons. But remember, he has two categories of deacons. This matter is still discussed today, as you know, whether women should be deacons or not. I'm not going to go into that, but uh, just to remind you of Calvin's view, sometimes Calvin is quoted here. Calvin favored the um, office of deacons being open to women, and it's true. But he had two categories, and it was the second uh, category, the actual um, work that was done uh, by people, which could mean women, and I think in some ways especially would mean women to reach out personally and practically uh, to uh, people in, in need in the community, in the church, the refugees coming into the town. I'll come back uh, to women in a moment, uh, but I want to say a word about bishops, first of all. Uh, those are the uh, four offices. The outline perhaps doesn't make this as clear as it could because bishop is not a fifth office. But uh, what does Calvin say about uh, the role of bishops? And what does he say about uh, the role of women in the church? Those are the, the two things that we'll take up uh, next. Calvin is very clear on what I think is very clear, and that is the word bishop equals the word elder. We've already seen that uh, Calvin has two kinds of elders. He has the pastor and he has the elder, 
you use Southern Presbyterian terminology, you have a teaching elder and ruling elder. That's certainly present in Calvin. And elder, he says, is the same as bishop. I don't think there's any debate about that. Even people that uh, support the development of uh, episcopacy as a appropriate church polity will say that uh, in the New Testament um, there were no bishops, or to put it another way, all elders were bishops. Calvin puts uh, great stress on the on the parity of ministers, parity of the clergy as a Presbyterian theme. You certainly see that in Calvin. Lest uh, anyone should arrogate to himself the sole bishopric of Christ, 426. There's a sense in which Christ is the bishop, the chief elder, is another way to say it. And all his servants are equal. No one stands above another. This commentary on 1 Corinthians 5.4 says, There is nothing in greater opposition to the discipline of Christ than tyranny, and the door is wide open to it if all the power is surrendered to one man. So Calvin opposes the, the emergence of monarchical bishops, leading eventually to the papacy. It is true, though, that Calvin has a kind of uh, flexibility here that uh, has not always marked uh, people in the Reformed tradition. Calvin recognizes um, Paul's authority over Titus, so goes back to the New Testament period and says the point that he's made about the equality or the parity of all clergy, well, that's not a word he likes, of all ministers, pastors um, is qualified by Paul's authority over Titus. It's commentary on Titus 1.5. He says, we learn from this passage that there was not then such equality among the ministers that none had some authority and counsel above the others. Paul was able to tell Titus what to do, where to go, how to carry on his ministry. That seems to be the role of a bishop. And uh, Calvin says, it's true, Paul did have that authority. In this sense, it's the authority of an apostle over the evangelist. Well, that's right. I think that is right. Uh, yes, it's Paul is an apostle. Titus is his associate. Differentiation within evangelist, but an apostle over Whether Calvin would say we could bring that up to date and say Luther had the same kind of authority over Melanchthon would be an interesting question that Calvin would probably laugh at and say, starting to speculate now. <laughs> but uh, he does recognize um, that that's a, a point that uh, those who favor episcopacy will make and those who favor Presbyterianism often deny. We try to assert that there was parity within the New Testament, but uh, Calvin says not, uh, that there's certain 
special authority, but I think you're right. It's an apostle. This is in the commentary on Titus 1.5. And Calvin, yes, question here. I was just going to ask, is that also just related to elder being elder in the sense of experience, you know, being an elder in the faith, being an elder in the, uh, having more experience in this work, and as far as, I know Paul was, is an apostle, but mm-hmm. what if that was the same situation today, you know, as far as a, a head pastor over an assistant pastor, yeah. helping him and training him? Well, you know, that certainly is, is there, too, because Paul is is the pioneer, and he is mentoring these younger men. And, uh, of course, he's going to know more, and they're going to defer to him. Uh, so I, I think that uh, that point is well taken, too. You know, as much as we talk about parity of the clergy in the... Presbyterian system we hold to that we think it's important in one sense we don't have that because it's impossible you know one one man will stand up at general assembly and say something and everybody votes for him and somebody else will stand up and say something and nobody pays much attention to him because some people are more persuasive they're more um, they're more powerful than they're presentations, uh, they serve big churches or something. So I think it's important to have the principle of parity of the clergy, but we probably should recognize that it's impossible for everybody to be exactly equal in influence and in uh, authority. It's a kind of, uh, kind of authority that comes along with some people and they carry a lot of weight. But they're still not um, bishops. Yes, Does that manifest itself perhaps more in, say, a vote, whereas a ruling elder carries the same weight as a well-recognized senior pastor? That's right. Yes, there's certainly parity there because the influential person has one vote as well as the ruling elder who never says anything. So it's an important principle, but uh, there's a certain um, reality that that goes along uh, with it. And I don't think it's something we need to be concerned about. It's just the way things are. Calvin also um, felt that in in the early church, there were bishops. I mean, there were bishops in the early church. The situation that we find in the New Testament shifts by the second century. So there are monarchical bishops. We use that expression. That means single bishop over a number of um, pastors, single bishop over other bishops. Monarchical means one bishop. It's over against the New Testament um, idea of uh, all bishops being elders, all elders being equal. Uh, Calvin says the ancient bishops, this is four, four, four in the Institutes, the ancient bishops did not intend to fashion any other form of church rule than that which God has laid down in his word. So Calvin says, yes, there were bishops that emerged, but uh, 
you might say they were good bishops. They were bishops that were uh, not lording it over the Lord's flock and uh, demanding uh, authority and creating a, a tyranny in the church. Because you see, Calvin likes to find support in what he calls the consensus of the first five centuries. Now, he doesn't think that the church always got everything right in the first five centuries. But uh, Calvin sees uh, things deteriorating, not right away in the second century, but about the fifth century, and uh, looks to the first uh, five centuries as a time in which the church basically was still on track until the papacy becomes the papacy and all the evils that accrue uh, after that. And Calvin could also say that for the sake of order, he would be willing, he did not do this in Geneva, but if it was necessary for it to be done elsewhere, uh, he would be willing to see a hierarchical government with archbishops and bishops. Uh, he wrote um, uh, to Christians in Poland that felt that that was the way they wanted to um, structure their polity and basically said that um, that was all right. And you might remember, too, that uh, when John Knox did his first book of uh, discipline in Scotland, he had a place for bishops. They were not, um, they were not bishops in the sense of, of dictatorial bishops, but uh, of administrative uh, leaders in the church. Presbyterianism has generally been very opposed to bishops, and whenever we hear that word in the modern sense, we get very upset. But um, Calvin is more flexible on that. His own preference is no bishops, but um, rather than destroying the church, uh, he would say if it's necessary, then uh, he could permit it. Okay, the last uh, few minutes here on the role of uh, women in the church. We've seen that the office of deacon was open to women based on description of the work of the widows in 1 Timothy 5. Now, that's where Calvin would find his scriptural support for this. Those women are not called deacons, but he feels that um, they're doing the work of deacons of this sort where the widows whom Paul mentions to Timothy, he says in 439. So you have the description of the work of the women in 1 Timothy 5. You also have the example of Phoebe, commentary on Romans 16.1. Calvin says, exercised a very honorable and holy ministry in the church. And there she's called a deaconess. It's debated by people as to exactly what that means. Does it mean an office or does it mean simply a servant? Because that's what the word deacon means. But uh, Calvin did have a place uh, under the category of deacons for women, as we have seen. Modern-day Calvin scholar, Elsie Ann McKee teaches at uh, Princeton, 
friend of mine, wrote this, The subordinate role Calvinist gave to women was typical of the age. It is notable, however, that John Calvin himself could, in theory, see women's exclusion from real leadership roles in the church as a matter of decency and order, and thus subject to change when social customs changed. I want to kind of keep that um, in abeyance for a moment and test it a a bit. But uh, what uh, Dr. McKee is saying is that uh, Calvin certainly gives a, a subordinate role to women. That was typical of the 16th century but that uh, Calvin, in theory, could see that um, women could be included in real leadership roles. I suppose she means there as pastor and as elder. And um, when social customs change, that it would be possible for women uh, to serve in these other offices. Now, Calvin does have some uh, remarkable passages on women and the role of women. Let me just uh, read one or two of those. Uh, Mark 16.1 says this, Christ made a start with the women after the resurrection and not only let them see him but gave them the message of the gospel for the apostles making them their teachers. So here for a moment in time, uh, the women are teaching the apostles. Become the women who go to the empty tomb, teach the apostles about the resurrection. Calvin goes on to say, though the intention to anoint Christ was not free of censure, they were reckoning him still to be dead, he pardons their weakness and honors them with exceptional distinction taking the apostolic office away from the men for the moment and committing it to them. The apostles were to bear witness of the resurrection of Christ, and the apostles were not doing that. So, at least temporarily, that office was removed from them and given uh, to the women. It seems that Calvin does suggest there that When men don't do what they should do, then God could use women to do what men do not do. Like Deborah, yes, which was the example that he raised with John Knox when Knox wrote the first blast of the trumpet. Another uh, interesting uh, passage uh, on this is um, Calvin's uh, comment um, in the Institutes, which we read about uh, Paul's uh, teaching concerning uh, head coverings and women's silence uh, in the church. Uh, These requirements, that is, women should always have hats on and should keep quiet in church, Uh, apparently for Calvin, these were uh, indifferent matters to be solved practically. Uh, These were not um, permanent uh, injunctions. This is what uh, Calvin says when 
he writes about this in the Institutes. Does religion consist in a woman's shawl so that it is unlawful for her to go out with a bare head? Is that decree of Paul concerning silence so holy that it cannot be broken without great offense? Just ask some questions here. He doesn't really give an answer, but uh, he suggests um, an answer. Is there in bending the knee or in burying a corpse any holy rite that cannot be neglected without offense? Not at all. Here comes his answer. For if a woman needs such haste to help a neighbor that she cannot stop to cover her head, she does not offend if she runs to her with her head uncovered. It's not a big deal. <laughs> it's not time to put on your hat. You want to go out and do a good deed and just don't worry about the hat. And then this sentence. And there is a place where it is no less proper for her to speak than elsewhere to remain silent. Calvin doesn't flesh that out, so we don't quite know what he's talking about. But he seems to say there is a time and there is a place for women to speak. And uh, the injunction, woman's head must always be covered, and woman must always keep quiet, uh, would um, be matters that... uh, are indifferent than to be resolved practically and not made a, a permanent uh, rule. That is 410.31, page 1209. But uh, to go back to uh, Dr. McKee's uh, comment that when things change, then Calvin would have been able to uh, see women in other roles in the church. It seems to me that that um, is not true, that that overstates uh, the matter. Calvin's view of women in church office, except deacon, does not appear to be open to change when social customs change, as she said. We have uh, in 4.15, 21 and 22, Uh, Calvin's um, argument uh, that uh, women are not permitted to baptize. In uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, a woman could baptize in an emergency. Of course, the Roman Catholic view was that baptism was absolutely essential for regeneration. And uh, if uh, a midwife was delivering a baby, and that baby was not going to live, and there was no priest there, then a woman could baptized, and that was permissible. Calvin said, no, women cannot baptize because the function of the sacraments is tied to the preaching of the word. And uh, if women are not permitted to preach, they're not permitted uh, to administer the sacraments. seems to me that um, in a passage like that, as well as the commentary on 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, and 3, 1 and 2, where you have Paul's um, statements about um, the role of women and the role of church officers, uh, that Calvin 
would not have been open to change when social customs change. But having said that, there is a there is a kind of um, theme that runs through here in Calvin, remarkable for the 16th century, and that is appreciation for women, for their contribution to the church, uh, for their role in the church. And uh, I suppose I cannot say absolutely dogmatically what Calvin would have or would not have done or said if he had been alive today. That's always a, a risky sort of thing. But uh, to go back to uh, the 16th century, uh, he, he does um, believe that women should be in a subordinate role in the church. I don't think influenced primarily by culture, but uh, influenced primarily by scripture. But he has certain flexibility there, it seems to me. There are some places and some times when women can speak appropriately. And there is at least the, the positive uh, message that uh, all God's children are part of the church. We're all clergy. We all belong to the Lord. And that God has gifted us all in certain ways to serve each other and to serve him in the church. Well, Calvin doesn't solve this issue for us, and it's one that... Um, we're still going to have to talk about long and hard in order to get a good understanding of what we should do. Well, time is up. Uh, next time, sacraments, and then the last class on civil government. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Looking for more resources? Access more than 1,000 downloadable articles, sermons, and more at resourcesforlifeonline.com. Search resources by keyword, author, or Bible reference. Grace-focused, Christ-centered resources, free to you. resourcesforlifeonline.com.